Good morning, and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Uh, back in the 1970s, the United States declared war on cancer. Yet today in the United States, one in three women and one in two men will develop cancer in their lifetimes. And in the world, cancer may surpass heart disease as the most common cause of death sometime in the next decade. Today's guest is Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, the author of The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer, the 2011 Pulitzer Prize winner in nonfiction, and a book that the New York Times named one of the 10 best of the year. Dr. Mukherjee is a practicing oncologist, cancer researcher, and a professor at Columbia University. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Mukherjee. My pleasure being with you. Well, let's start uh, by telling our listeners what the impetus was for you in writing The Emperor of All Maladies. Uh, well, I was, a, I was a fellow in training uh, in cancer medicine and medical oncology in Boston. And the impetus was actually quite simple. It was a I was in the middle of my training, and uh, a woman who I was treating for uh, a variant of abdominal cancer asked me, she said she was willing to go on with her chemotherapy, but she needed to know what she was fighting. Um, and it seemed to me the question was very elemental. Here we are, uh, supposedly in the midst of an enormous battle, enormous war on cancer, and yet as far as patients are concerned, um, uh, and perhaps even uh, scientists, we feel a little bit lost. We don't know where we are, we don't know how we got here, we don't know what's happening next and, and what, what, the, what, the, what the news is, I mean, how to discriminate between uh, hype and, and reality. So uh, these questions began to really prey on my mind, um, and I wondered if, if, the, if the way to solve them was, was not to write a book. And so slowly I started writing a journal, and over time it, it grew into the book. And, and when you use the word biography instead of the word history, f when you're doing a biography of cancer, do you, do you view cancer as having a type of personality? Well, I tried to, uh, not to over-personify cancer. I mean, the use of the word biography is, is sort of a, a more poetic use of the word. I mean, you don't enter the book literally, and it's not like cancer acquires a personality. I think that would be a kind of... a a ruse, uh, which I wasn't very happy with. Uh, in fact, I, I thought of the word, the, the title biography was given much late into the into the book, um, and that is because, as as you know, it's, I didn't want to write a straight history. I, I'm I'm part of the history in the sense that you know I was I was treating patients, I was learning uh, the discipline even as I wrote the book. And it seemed to me that the word history was just too inert. It didn't describe the kind of process. It didn't even describe the kind of process that patients feel in becoming part of this uh, larger story. So therefore, I used, as I said, a more poetic use of the word biography. And, and Dr. Mukherjee, would you talk a little bit about what the first known cases of cancer were? I know that's that's also not entirely certain, uh, but well, there are some... Well, some of it is known and some of it is not known. Well, the word cancer doesn't come into our vocabulary until quite late, uh, and by quite late I mean really the Greeks uh, were the first to use, begin to use the word cancer, but even that, that use, even the use by the Greeks was not, uh, you know, they, 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 they called many things cancer, some of which were, would be contemporary uh, recognized as, as cancer. Um, the very first cases of cancer we know of come from historical records, um, and again, we don't have the word there, so it's a little bit hard to tell. But perhaps the most striking is that probably the oldest uh, uh, medical uh, record that we have, uh, one of the oldest, is um, 
is a, is a is a is a manuscript called the Edwin Smith Papyrus. This comes to us from about 2500 BC, um, and in it there is a case. There are about 50 cases described, and one of the cases is remarkably similar to breast cancer. The description. Now again, we don't have a word for cancer, but it's the description that is so vivid that it, that it almost certainly uh, sounds like a contemporary description of cancer. And the origin of the word cancer actually has a really interesting history as well. Uh, the word cancer, uh, Hippocrates imagined that um, the lumps of a, of a tumor were like a crab buried underneath the sand, and the blood vessels that were swollen around the tumor were like the legs of the crab surrounding the, uh, surrounding the, the cancer. And so Hippocrates uh, coined, the, coined the word. Now, uh, one thing that's in, interesting and important about it is that it's, it's a metaphorical description to start with. It's fundamentally steeped in metaphor. And I, I thought it was, it's actually quite, quite striking that even today we have only um, so many metaphors to, um, to understand cancer. Well, given that cancer is probably thousands of years old, um, you, you, you refer to cancer in The Emperor of All Maladies as a quintessential modern illness. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by that? Well, so although I mean, actually raise the question. I, I ask, uh, you know, is why is it that we think of cancer as a modern illness when, in fact, as I point out in the book, it's been around with us probably for, for since the beginning of time. Um, part of the reason is, in fact, that the that the incidence and the prevalence of cancer is increasing, and you could ask why. Part of the reason is that the population, our population, is aging overall. Uh, part of the reason cancer is becoming more and more predominant is because we're, we're not dying of other things. And cancer, some cancers are age-related. Breast cancer, for instance, very famously age-related. So it creates this kind of uh, peculiar paradox in which you're curing other diseases, not dying of other things, and thereby uh, dying of cancer. But that's not the only reason that cancer is increasing in the modern world. Um, we're becoming better and better at detecting early cancer. So, for instance, breast cancer is a good example. We've become so good at detecting breast cancer that sometimes uh, we diagnose breast cancer at very early stages, earliest stages. Now, we would never have been able to diagnose this uh, 50 years ago, maybe a century uh, ago. And, and finally, it is inescapably true that, that the spectrum of cancers is changing and some things to do with human behavior have also increased uh, the prevalence and incidence of cancer. The most obvious culprit is, of course, tobacco. Um, smoking, uh, you know, smoking particularly in the last 20, 30 years is still playing itself out in the increase in lung and throat and lip and bladder cancer. But also, for instance, use of hormones, estrogen-containing hormones, which was uh, uh, quite, a, quite a big common occurrence in, the, in women in, in the, the 80s uh, to uh, cure menopausal symptoms, is now showing up as uh, increased incidence in breast cancer. So really, the spectrum of reasons has made cancer uh, much more uh, common in the, in the popular eye than it ever was before. And how would you describe a definition for what cancer is, if you could give a definition? Well, the fundamental common definition is that cancer is the uh, growth of uncontrolled growth of cells. Um, uh, there are this growth is often accompanied by certain other properties that these cells acquire. The cells that start growing um, acquire, um, for instance, their capacity to survive in certain conditions and so forth. But at the very fundamental level, um, cancer is. is is caused by the overgrowth, the uncontrolled growth of cells. 
Is, is that part of the conundrum of treating cancer that, unlike most diseases, cancer is essentially a derangement of a normal process in our body rather than something foreign coming in? That's exactly right. I mean, that is the conundrum, and, and uh, people people underestimate this conundrum. But let me un- let, let me give you an example of how, how, how complex this conundrum is. The conundrum is the following. The very genes that allow our embryos to grow, our brains to grow, our noses to grow, if you take those very genes, these are growth-controlling genes. These are fundamental to the growth of all human beings. And in fact, these genes are present uh, all the way, variants of these genes are present all the way to the simplest animals. So in other words, these are deeply stitched into the way our bodies survive, the way our bodies grow. Uh, but if you if you disrupt these very genes, then you begin to get a cell that doesn't know how to stop growing. So it's almost like two sides of a coin. One side of the coin is benign growth, the kind of growth that sustains our lives, that allows us to heal a wound. Uh, and if you just flip that coin around, if you just take that growth and you make it uncontrolled, then you get cancer. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. Think about it for a second. So let's say you cut, let's say a, a human being, you cut, you cut yourself in the skin. Well, the skin begins to heal, and the only way it can heal is by growing. So it grows back. But what prevents that growth from turning into an enormous growth that is unstoppable? What prevents us when a wound heals? Clearly, something happens in the skin cells that are normal, know when to stop growing. What What prevents us from getting a huge tumor, a cancer, every time we cut ourselves? It's because the process of growth is very finely tuned in our bodies, such that growth is given signals at certain places. When you have injury, you might have growth, and then it stops. In cancer, the problem is that the growth doesn't know when to stop, and that's the central conundrum. We're talking today with Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, the author of The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. So, Dr. Mukherjee, do you feel, where do you fall on the spectrum of pessimism or optimism with regards to the war on cancer and, and what's been achieved or not been achieved over the last 40 years? Well, you know, I think I'm... I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm a so I'm what I, I think I am a sober optimist. I think uh, there's been a lot of hype around uh, this idea. I'm a sober optimist in the sense that we now know things about cancer that we just didn't know 10 years or even 20 years ago. The way the, the nature of knowledge around cancer has exploded, um, and that knowledge is slowly being converted into drugs. It is undeniably true that piece by piece by piece, the knowledge of the, our understanding of what's wrong with a cell such that it becomes cancerous is being converted into medicines. And the first medicines from that are now available. Pa- patients are taking these medicines, and some of them are, are having in- incredible responses. Now, that said, there's a long lag period that, that you know, the, the, to convert the, the knowledge uh, that we acquire from basic cellular biology into real medicines takes about, used to take about 20, 20 years. Um, more lately, that's been accelerated. Right now, I think one of, the, one of the fastest things you've seen, for instance, is a medicine against melanoma that went from the identification of the abnormal gene to the medicine in about five years, depending on when you start the clocks. Now, now that's, that's amazing, and that's, that's something that I'm very optimistic about. And, and speaking of uh, gene, doing research on genetic mutations and, and gene therapy, do, do you feel like there's too much emphasis placed on that? I know at one point in your book you talk about the overemphasis on a viral cause for cancer. And I know that some doctors now are, are wondering whether this is too narrow of a focus in terms of uh, research on cancer today. 
Well, I think it's. I think the, the frontier keeps changing. I think if we get stuck on the idea of just genes, I think that's a problem. But I, I, I don't think sophisticated cancer scientists are not stuck on the idea of genes. It's very clear that genes are a central role in all of this. In other words, as I said before, the very genes that cause embryos to grow or bodies to grow, if you corrupt those genes, you get cancer. But cancer is not just a set of corrupted genes. Cancer is an illness that has very complex manifestations. For instance, um, you know, why is it that uh, that uh, certain, you know, that what is the relationship between cancer and the immune system? Well, that relationship certainly goes beyond the cancer gene itself. It goes into the genes of the immune system. Uh, what is the relationship between cancer and, um, uh, you, you know, particular sites in the body? Why does? Why does prostate cancer metastasize so commonly to the bone? Once again, you might need to do look outside the cancer cell to try to figure out uh, how, how this works. So, so I think there's, this is changing, and I think the limitations of the genetic approach will become apparent. But, 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 but there's lots, there's, the genes have a lot to say still about cancer. One of my favorite parts in the book was uh, your exploration of of that first transition with Sidney Farber from the people who were just using surgery for cancer before people could conceive of there being an oral agent for cancer. And the surgeries were getting more and more radical uh, in the hope that if you just cut more, you would have better results. And then he just um, switches the whole paradigm, essentially, with some experiments that he does on his own. Right. I mean, look, it is absolutely true that surgery still remains the mainstay of cancer therapy for a vast number of cancer, uh, breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, uh, melanoma. Uh, we're still we're yet to find as effective a modality as surgery in most cancers. But that said, some cancers could not be treated by surgery. And that blood cancers, very importantly, could not be treated uh, like surg- uh, with, with, uh, with surgery because blood is all over the body. And so that was the impetus to try to find a chemical therapy that would allow, that would specifically go and kill cancer cells but spare normal cells. And that, of course, allowed Sidney Farber to start looking for chemotherapy. What was incredible about reading that section about Sidney Farber also was how unmonitored his activity was. In a sense, he he asks a friend for a substance, he tries it out on a group of people in the hospital, and, and when those people actually die quicker, the hospital seems irritated, but he's allowed to keep on doing these experiments without a lot of oversight. I, and, you, you know, one of the things that's, uh, that's absolutely true is that... Um, we, we live now in an era where oversight has created an enormous amount of good. There's no doubt. There cannot be any doubt about that. And by oversight, I mean strong regulations that allow us to uh, make sure that patients are treated safely, patients are treated well. But in the end, there's, there's a darker side to too much regulation, and that is that you, you, experimental therapies depend on the capacity to take risks. And I, I, I begin to wonder whether our regulatory system has become encumbered, uh, such that, uh, such that it, to some extent we aren't being able to take these kinds of perform these kinds of important uh, drug trials that uh, we really need to perform. It sure seems like he might not have discovered that if he was uh, working today. Yes, and, and, and I think, it, to be completely fair, the, 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 there was, there, there was a, a free-for-all quality in the 1940s and 1950s. It was like the Wild West. Um, and and that's, not what, that's certainly not what we desire now. What we desire is a mechanism by which uh, good medicines can be appropriately judged in good time, such that, uh, such that we, you see these, this process of bringing medicines to real life in the clinic isn't dragged out forever. 
Could you talk a little bit about uh, the use of mustard gas in wartime and how that actually advanced cancer research? In fact, uh, we talked about Sidney Farber being uh, inventing chemotherapy. Uh, chemotherapy, in fact, was invented a little bit before Sidney Farber, although much of that work was uh, shrouded in secrecy because of the war. The episode you're referring to is uh, the fact that uh, mustard gas was used during the First and the Second War. Um, and when pathologists went back to examine soldiers who'd been bombed by mustard gas, they, di- they discovered something peculiar, and that is that they found that some of these uh, soldiers, their bone marrow cells, their white blood cells, had particularly been attacked by mustard gas. And so uh, scientists, including uh, Goodman and Gilman at Yale University, began to wonder whether they could use a variant of mustard gas to specifically attack white blood cell cancers. In other words, if you could kill normal white blood cells with mustard gas, could you even more actively kill malignant white blood cells? So uh, it's a, it was an amazing idea, and it's still the, the the gas is still a variant. A cousin of mustard gas is still used today. If you go to the hospital uh, and you go to a chemotherapy ward, it, it might not you might not know it, but some of the patients who are getting uh, medicines are getting variants of mustard gas. That's very fascinating. One of one of the things that I think really makes Emperor of All Maladies a, a really rich and rewarding read is all of the literary references you use from Susan Sontag to Solzhenitsyn. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk about Solzhenitsyn's uh, mention of cancer as he calls it a gulag of confinement that strips you of your identity. Well, Solzhenitsyn actually wrote one of his most prominent books was a book about uh, about cancer. And so um, it's, a, it's a book called uh, Cancer Ward. And um, and it, it's an amazing book. Uh, it was uh, – and, and it, it, Solzhenitsyn uses uh, the idea of the ward as a kind of metaphor. Uh, he uh, uses um, – the uh, the idea that you could be confined in, in this uh, in his book, uh, this patient, this uh, this young Russian man, uh, youngish Russian man, is whisked. Away, he's diagnosed with cancer and he's whisked away somewhere up north, to some mysterious place. Um, and there, the ward, the cancer ward, becomes like a prison. He's imprisoned, literally, not only by his disease, but by the state in becoming a cancer patient. Um, and 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 for Solzhenitsyn, of course, the cancer ward was a metaphor for the totalitarian state, uh, how, it, how it took, how it, how it forced citizens to behave in particular ways and essentially deprived them. It, it dressed them up as, pa- as patients in Solzhenitsyn's case, but really deprived them of all autonomy. And, and, he, and he used the cancer ward to, to illustrate what that state of loss of autonomy is like. Um, but of course, uh, you know, as, as someone pointed out to me, you don't need, uh, you don't need a metaphor to understand this. Uh, patients who are entering cancer wards even today experience a deep sense of a lack of autonomy. You don't need a gulag outside it. The cancer ward becomes its own gulag. Cancer, the diagnosis of cancer becomes its own gulag. So, so th- these metaphorical uh, uh, parallels are very deep, and therefore Solzhenitsyn's book is still very resonant. Could you tell our listeners a little, uh, Dr. Mukherjee, about the person you dedicated Emperor of All Maladies to? Uh, the book is dedicated to Robert Sandler, and uh, it's, uh, the, Robert Sandler was the, probably the, one of the first children to receive chemotherapy for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This is the, the cancer that Sidney Farber worked on. 
And uh, the amazing story is that I, I only knew Robert Sandler as, uh, by, his, by his first and last initials. I knew him as R.S. And through a series of coincidences, I gradually uncovered what his name was and until I found his name was Robert Sandler. And then I found a picture of him which had been printed in the Boston Sunday Herald in 1948. And so, therefore, I dedicated the book to people, to Robert Sandler and to those who come before and after him. And, and I'm sure we have a lot of listeners today who are probably saying to themselves, this history is super fascinating. Is there anything that we know now that maybe we didn't know in the 70s that I can do to lower my risk of cancer going forward? Well, some of them are obvious, um, and I talk about them in the book. So in terms of cancer prevention, we talk about I talk about cessation of tobacco. I think it's it's an amazing thing. We're looking all around the world for agents to prevent cancer uh, that, uh, and yet the most the biggest one the elephant in the room is literally staring us in the face so um, tobacco uh, we talk uh, I talk a little bit about radiation and radiation risk uh, some part of it also involves uh, is involves screening so mammography for instance uh, does have a capacity to reduce uh, breast cancer incidence um, and colonoscopy has the capacity to reduce colon cancer incidence. So these are not, one should not be neglecting the things that are already successful. But that said, one of the things that's been a very big frustration in cancer prevention, I think, is that although we've found many things of, that we can avoid to not get cancer, we found very few things that we can prospectively take to also not get cancer. Um, that list seems to be profoundly limited. It's not like, uh, you know, we found some magic ingredient that will become an anti-cancer reagent. Uh, there are some things in some, some um, variants of cancer that are helpful. So I think that's the challenge. The challenge really is how to convert this knowledge that's coming out of the cancer uh, biology into prevention of cancer. I'll give you one instance in which it's successful. Um, so, for instance, this drug tamoxifen, uh, which is a which modulates the way a hormone estrogen uh, signals in the body. Uh, tamoxifen was first invented in the 1960s as an anti-cancer drug to treat breast cancer. But now we know that in certain women with a very high risk of breast cancer, taking tamoxifen will actually reduce their risk of getting breast cancer in the future. So in other words, you can use this drug in uh, patients who are not, who don't have breast cancer, uh, and prevent them from getting uh, some variants of breast cancer. So it just goes to show that the silos that we used to have of, um, of uh, the, these medicines uh, treatment on one side, prevention on the other side, are no longer true. In fact, you can extrapolate backwards from treatment into prevention and vice versa. And I think that's very exciting to me, the idea that, you know, prevention and treatment can be so interrelated. Now, note, that, of course, that, that there, there was a very deep method by which these drugs were evaluated and found. So, in other words, the, the way that tamoxifen came to be used uh, in breast cancer was because, um, in fact, it's a fascinating story. In the 1800s, um, a, a physician, a surgeon, walking through Scotland, overheard um, some shepherds saying that, you know, if they remove the ovaries of cows, the cows, the lactation of cows, the way they produced milk changed. Now, this was a time no one knew anything about any hormones. Certainly, estrogen was not discovered. And, and the idea that the ovaries would have something to do with the breast, and in the case of cows, was completely sacred. I mean, it was not known at all. No one knew anything about it. But Beetson and subsequently his students and many of his colleagues and his scientific descendants soon figured out that ovaries secrete estrogen, which keeps breast cells alive. And, in fact, if you interrupt this 
access, this communication between ovaries and, and the breast, you can actually affect certain variants of breast cancer. So it was a very, very tested, a very rigorous, very slow, iterative scientific method that moves into the, the invention of tamoxifen and finally the arrival of tamoxifen as a prevention drug. Um, and I think that that's the kind of method that will yield things in the future. I mean, I hope that, you know, we discover something like blueberries decrease the risk of pancreatic cancer dramatically, but I suspect that it's going to not be like that. It's going to be more like the invention of specific medicines that interrupt specific axes for specific forms of cancer. And unfortunately, those medicines have side effects, so we have to balance the risks of, of taking these medicines in the first place. Well, you mentioned blueberries, and I, I was curious more about, um, I know we, it's really difficult to make a study, say, of people eating whole foods and, and exercising versus a sedentary population of people who are eating McDonald's, for instance, because you can't control for all the variables, and it's hard to uh, accumulate the data. But is there anything in that realm that you see as um, promising in terms of just lowering the rate of, of cancer incidence across the board? Well, there's, there's powerful evidence that suggests that um, that, that uh, eating a uh, diet low in uh, red meats and high in fiber decreases the risk of colon cancer. But again, we have to be specific for a specific form of cancer. That one can't make general statements. Um, on the flip side, the role of, of fat, for instance, in cancer remains very controversial. Uh, I'll give you a very poignant example. Uh, in, the, in the 1990s, uh, a whole group of researchers set out to study whether uh, consumption of high-fat diets affected one's risk of breast cancer, women's risk of breast cancer. And uh, it's a beautiful, very ingenious study. It's a very poignant study. I'll tell you why in one second. Uh, women were asked, uh, women with breast cancer and some women without breast cancer, matched in age, matched otherwise, were asked uh, whether they recalled having eaten higher-fat diets. And the results were very striking. The women with breast cancer always had had higher-fat diets. The women without breast cancer had lower-fat diets. Now, what's interesting is that these researchers had also kept a record of the same women, but before they had been diagnosed with cancer, let's say about five or seven years before they were diagnosed with cancer. And when they compared the results before the diagnosis of cancer, there was no difference. So in other words, when a woman had breast cancer, she selectively remembered eating a higher-fat diet. Why? Because we think, because, because women are still, still blame themselves. They, they look back at their memory and try to find the reason that they develop breast cancer. And it's a very poignant statement because, it, number one, it reminds us how much stigma is still attached to cancer, even though, you know, the, the big stigmas have been re removed. Even in 1990, women were more likely to summon a cause into memory rather than, uh, rather than sort of say that, I, you know, maybe it was genes, maybe it was the environment. So these studies are notoriously difficult to perform. And only the most rigorous ones can really illustrate what the roles of any particular carcinogen is. Well, Dr. Mukherjee, it was a, a great pleasure having you on Health Watch today, and I'm sure we've piqued the interest of uh, many of our listeners to check out your book. Thank you so much. We were talking today with Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host, and this is Health Watch. And if you missed part of today's program, you'll be able to go later today or tomorrow to kboo.fm slash healthwatch, and you can listen to it or download it online.